to Unexplained Paranormal from the team of unexplainedparanorm.com. Welcome to the Unexplained Paranormal Podcast, episode number one, Conversations with Andrea Perrin, part one. My name is Courtney Cato, and I wanted to give you a brief introduction to my podcast. I started this show to bring more awareness to the paranormal world and get the message out there. Many people are afraid to speak about their encounters and don't know where to go. This podcast is designed to help people through their experiences and bring forth a community that can feel safe. I have met and spoken with many within the field, but the person that I truly connected with is Andrea Perrin. Many know about her family's experiences from the old Arnold Estate farmhouse that was depicted in the movie, The Conjuring. The movie only grays the surface of what the family actually went through, which goes into more detail in her trilogy of books, House of Darkness, House of Light. The series goes into depth with what truly transpired during the parents' stay. I have had the wonderful opportunity to speak with her and find out that there were many great experiences within the house and how it has made the family stronger today. Enjoy part one of a two-part interview with my friend, Andrea Perrin. Hi, Andrea. I want to thank you for coming on our show. And I just wanted to thank you uh, once again for doing this for us. And I just wanted to go over uh, your story and get your message out there. So if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how your family found the home. Uh, well, I want to thank you first and foremost for having me on your show. It means a lot to me, and we made a very, what I think was a very profound personal connection a week or so ago when we first spoke. Uh, so that's why I'm here, because yeah. uh, there is a message to impart to the world, and I have no idea how many people will actually hear this recording, but my hope is that at least one's heart will be touched and one mind will be opened and one little bit of change will occur in the world because of the conversation that we have today. So it's my pleasure and my privilege to join you. I, this is this story is so huge that I really don't know where to begin. I'm going to put my mind uh, into uh, synopsis mode and try to go from there. Um, in 19, a lot of people know our story, or they think they know our story from the movie The Conjuring, but um, yeah. it's it is it's so different from the truth that it's virtually unrecognizable to our story. You know, when compared to our story, which is actually much more hypnotic, much more symbiotic, and certainly much more spiritual than a horror movie. Uh, and I'm not saying there weren't some elements of 
horror in our story. Yes, there were elements of horror in our story. <laughs> uh, but it was, um, you know, and they captured what they could. They compressed 10 years into two hours the best way they knew how. Uh, and they wrote their own third script, um, just plucking pieces of Ed Lorraine Warren's case files and then everything that I gave them, hoping that there would be an authentic film made as close as possible. Um, but that wasn't the case. It was actually a whole third story that was conjured up in the minds of two very nice, very talented screenwriters who tried to include elements of the truth and were turned down every single time. They went back to the big bosses, the brass at Warner Brothers, and said, here's wow. the script. And it got sent back over and over and over again because... They said that the real story was so intense that it would not only get an R rating because of just the fear factor, but because um, it would run people out of the theater. So wow. the conjuring is what they settled on. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> I know, huh? Mm. That's, but, that's really interesting. <laughs> The um, the story began actually long before we ever moved to the farm, which is why my trilogy of books, House of Darkness, House of Light, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, really tell a, a very expansive um, version of our story. And even that, even with 1,500 pages, uh, it doesn't include everything, but it includes enough. There were things that happened in that house that were either too painful or too personal for some of my mm -hmm. sisters to share. And so uh, we in the family know, but nobody else does. And um, it, it was their prerogative to withhold those stories from the memoir. So uh, the way I look at it is that you've got about 98% of everything of any real significance. But the real significant part of reading the books as compared to the movie, even though you're left with the impression from the film that everything was okay, that we were uh, uh, stayed together as a loving family, that my mom got through it, you know, these are are the impressions that are left by the conjuring. And and that's true. Um, so I can say that, you know, there are things about the movie that are absolutely true. Uh, but then there are things, you know, there's there's tr there's truth and then there's fiction and it's predominantly fictionalized. Whereas um my books and the memoirs, uh it's a lot of it's verbatim. I mean, I would sit for hours and hours with my <laughs> sisters and just type every word that came out of their mouths. I would ask questions, wow. type the question into the manuscript, and then type however long the answer was. Um, and uh, particularly in Volume 3, um, there okay. is a series of seven essays, one written by each member of my family, that I find um, really the most significant part of the whole story because it's in their own words. And I think that it's incredibly telling. Uh, the reason that I put it so close to the end of the story as a whole was because mm -hmm. I wanted the reader to already have their perspective well in place. 
when they okay. read the essays so that they feel that they've experienced it as well by then, um, having delved so deeply into um, the predicament that we faced over a decade yes. living in that incredible farmhouse. But my mom found the farmhouse in 1970. Um, in an inexplicable way. Um, and this not long after a series of very unfortunate events had begun to occur at our home in Cumberland, which is why I start the books there. Uh, volume one begins oh. in Cumberland, Rhode Island. Um, not only so that I can introduce my reader to every member of the family as a normal family, before we became a paranormal family, um, but also so they could understand that a whole series of events had to occur exactly, precisely the way that they did for us to get that house. Um, and so I refer to it on page one as a cosmic conspiracy, because in retrospect, in hindsight, uh, I understand now, four decades later, that it happened precisely the way that it was supposed to happen for us to go to that farm, live at that farm, think about that farm after we left, and then tell the story of the farm three decades after we departed. Um, right. This was all somehow, some way, it feels too perfect the way it has all transpired for it to be something other than deliberate, not just mm -hmm. random, not just chance, not coincidence. I don't believe in coincidence. I think it's a word that we made up to explain away the inexplicable events of life. Um, and even though there are things that coincide, uh, it doesn't mean that it happens by accident. I don't think there are any accidents. Um, so, you know, that being my perspective now at almost 58 years old, I moved into that farm when I was 12 years old. My youngest sister was five. And mom and dad moved heaven and earth to buy the farm. Uh, it was, my mom found it in June of 1970, and she put every dime our family had, just about. Uh, <laughs> she left money for milk and bread, and she left enough Aww. money to keep the account open. And my father was off on a business trip, and she found, um, she took me to a flute lesson, and while I was in my lesson, she picked up a local newspaper, and I came out. We went home. That night, she opened the paper, quote-unquote, randomly, and her eyes mm -hmm. just leapt to an advertisement that seemed to leap out of the paper at her. And it was 9.30 at night, and back in 1970, you don't call anybody at 9.30 at night. That is considered the height of rudeness. Um, it, well, it should still be. Unfortunately, life has changed in that respect. Um, but um, she called the realtor and made an appointment mm -hmm. to see the farm the next morning. Uh, this wow. as a culmination of her saying over and over again, I want to get my kids out of here. I want a place in the country. I want a place in the country. I want a place in the country. It was... It was it, her intention 
to move us out of an encroaching suburb with lots of negative things going on around us to such an extent that we were relegated to staying in our own yard all the time. We could not go anywhere out of our yard where she could not see us unless she was with us. And so, you know, the little boys that we grew up with and went to grammar school with turned into budding criminals. And, uh, you know, there were all kinds of, I mean, the, the first 40 or 50 pages of volume one takes you by the hand and drags you through a series of some awful things that happened that prompted my mother to get us out of there. But the worst among them and the most telling among them is that my father, two years before my mother found the farm, uh, brought home a puppy that we loved and adored. And my mother swooped her up in her arms and she said, this is a very special dog. She deserves an equally special name. And she closed her eyes and tilted her head back and, you know, just seemed to have a conversation with heaven and came back with the name Bathsheba. And that's what she named our dog. And, you know, we being little kids, you know, I was, I think, maybe nine or ten at the time, um, was like, oh, okay, Sheba. You know, we just abbreviated it. Because <laughs> we didn't know that name. We didn't know the biblical reference. We didn't know, you know, anything right. about it. We thought, well, that's very unusual. And, um, you know, <laughs> all, equally unusual that it turned out that we lived in a house where um, we had encounters with a spirit, we believe, uh, was Bathsheba Sharman. Um, but she was not the one that went after my mother. I'm not saying she was all, you know, incredibly pleasant or anything, but she was not the (laughs) one that went after my mother. And being that the film, The Conjuring, is based on the case files, predominantly the case files of Ed and Lorraine Warren, you know, that was Mm -hmm. Lorraine's the one that said, I sense a malignant presence in your house. Her name is Bathsheba. Um, when she came uh-huh. to the farm in 1973, and she knew nothing about the history of that house, absolutely nothing when okay. she walked in the door. Nor did my mother go seek out Ed and Lorraine Warren, as is portrayed in the film. She had no idea okay. who they were when they showed up at our kitchen door, but she was a very gracious woman. They looked harmless enough. She let them in, <laughs> and they explained who they were, and they had actually been sent there by Keith Johnson, um, who showed up at our house inexplicably two months earlier uh, to uh, assist us with a uh, supernatural dilemma, and nobody knew who he was when he pulled into the yard. Nobody from our home called him. Uh, He said, your mom called me, and she's like, "Uh, no, I didn't. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, to this day, 40, you know, that was 1970. 73 and it's it's a long time later than that and we still can't wrap our heads around how that happened but I have my suspicions about that we can get into that uh, you know maybe a little bit later but I'll bring you up to date it took between June and December of 1970 for my mother to convince my father that this was a good idea um, to go forward with the purchase of the farm, um, 
selling the boat, selling this, selling that. I mean, we had a lot of money to come up with for a down payment on a colonial farmhouse, a colonial barn, and 200 acres of land. Um, Wow. And so um, it was an all-out endeavor for the whole family. And, you know, we were, I mean, my sister, one of the funniest stories in the whole book. Oh, God, I shouldn't spoil it. I should just, I should. (laughs) Oh, come on. (laughs) Why not, Andrea? (laughs) You know, oh, but it's so precious. My sister, Nancy, who is the second born, who is about the size of my left thigh. I cannot understand genetics at all. I'm an Amazon and she's a pixie. I can't, I don't get it. But um, she, uh, she said that she would help mom one day. It was in the, that, that summer before we moved to the farm. Um, and mom was making Yankee pot roast, which meant peeling potatoes, peeling carrots, peeling onions, and all the peels were on the kitchen counter, and Nancy came and said, I'll clean that up for you, Mom, and she swooped them up, and she put them into a brown paper bag, and she went to the sweetest, most gullible woman on the whole street up to Mrs. Hill's house at the top of the road, and Mrs. Hill gave her a dollar for all the scraps from our to help us make money to buy the house. To buy the farmhouse, and Nancy comes on back in the house, and then it's like, Mom, Mom, look what Mrs. Hill gave me. And she she said, Mrs. Hill said, and she said, Why did she give you that? She says, Because I brought her compost for her garden. Oh God! Oh God! Needless to say, Mrs. Hill got her dollar back. Oh. Oh, that's sweet, though. She wanted to contribute in some way. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep, she did. And nobody pouts better than she does. You should have seen her face when Mom told her that that was not cool what she did. So anyway, but getting to the bigger picture, that's why uh, I named the memoir House of Darkness, House of Light. It got its title from my mother. And I was about between three and four hundred pages into the original manuscript when my mom walked up to uh, the desk one day and just put her hand on my shoulder, just checking in, seeing how I was doing, because she saw me working anywhere from 14 to 16 hours a day, seven days a week. And went through a period where she was very concerned about how long Mm -hmm. I worked, how hard I worked, you know, how relentless I was about doing this. And um, she came up to me. She's like, okay, take a break for a minute. And she um, brought me a cup of coffee, and we were um, just – chatting and she looked at the computer screen and she said what have you come up with for a title and I said I haven't I haven't even thought about it I mean I'm I'm in the thick of it right now you know I haven't even thought about it (laughs) and she she just crossed her arms and she said house of darkness house of light it was both and then walked away and she was right (laughs) it was both I knew immediately in the same way that I knew that the cover had to be the watercolor folk art drawing that our family friend John Shaw made for us after we moved. Uh-huh. He was so heartbroken that he went home, locked himself in his room, which was also his art studio, and stayed there for days and drew the farm from memory um, of the times that uh-huh. he had 
feet there and then drove it, had it professionally framed and drove it from Harrisville, Rhode Island to uh, Cherokee County, Georgia to present it to my family. It is a family heirloom and he was only 19 years old when he did this. And it is a family heirloom, and it's the cover of all three books with different writing behind it. So, you know, give it just right. a little bit different texture to go with the colors of the covers. But it is, um, it's a treasured keepsake of my family's. And uh, John Shaw is a treasured member of our family. So, you know, this is a very, very sentimental treatment of our family story. Uh, and I make yeah. no apologies for that. None. <laughs> I mean, I opened <laughs> freaking vain to write these books, let me tell you. And so did everybody else in the family. Um, I have six notebooks full of handwritten interviews and notes and uh, conversations that are, you know, shorthanded page after page after page of going through, re you know, Exhuming the dead, um, and it's, we had to do that. We really all had to, you know, open the proverbial vein to um, let this all out, to share this with the world after we had all kept it so very much right. to ourselves and our, our inner circle, as it were. Now, when you've got seven people, that inner circle is quite large. You know, because we each yeah. all have our personal friends that knew, and we have family friends that knew, and we had kids we grew up with that knew. And, you know, so there were hundreds and possibly more than a 1,000 people that knew right. directly from us what was happening in that farmhouse. But, you know, in a country of 330 million, that is literally a drop in the bucket. So um, yeah. it was... Uh, it was quite something. Um, we bought the house in December. Uh, my mother refused to move her entire family uh, at Christmas time, so we moved in in the beginning of January. And uh, it was, uh, we had visited the farm a number of times uh, as a family before we actually moved in. None of us had, and believe me, I asked every member of my family this question, did anything untoward happen? Was there any kind of supernatural activity? Do you remember anything unusual, anything that happened during our visit with Mr. Kenyon while he still owned the farm and before we moved in? And the answer across the board was no. But the day we wow. moved in, uh, it, it began immediately. And it started with my father throwing open the back of the moving van, handing me a box and telling me to take it to my mother in the kitchen. I went through, I mean, it was a swirling snow and bleat and ice event going on that day. Uh, so it took forever to get from Cumberland to Harrisville because the roads were so slippery. But once we did get there, um, you know, we were all very excited. We were, it's moving day. Your kids, it's exciting. And um, I grabbed the cups. I walked in the parlor door. I took a hard right there with Mr. Kenyon, packing the last of his belongings that were in the built-in china cabinet in the dining room. And there was another man standing um, near him, about three feet away from him, uh, in the corner of the doorway uh, in the dining room in front of the foyer going through to the kitchen. And I wow. uh, 
I communicated uh, first and foremost with Mr. Kenyon, who I was very fond of, and said good morning to him, and we smiled and gestured to each other, even though I was holding a very large box. And then I saw the other man, and, I, and the first thing I thought was, oh, God, do people dress like that here? You know? I mean, how far away from the city are we? Because uh, he was just dressed in it. It just looked like uh, really um, antique clothes. And uh, okay. so as I walked past him, um, I smiled and uh, said good morning to him, thinking he was, you know, a friend of Mr. Kenyon's. And apparently he was a friend of Mr. Kenyon's in spite of the fact that he was dead. And um, he appeared absolutely solid to me. He did not respond to me. He looked straight through me and focused all of his attention on Mr. Kenyon. And I walked in the kitchen and I asked my mother, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And she said, there's nobody with Mr. Kenyon. His son's on the way. He's not here yet. Um, And that was the beginning. And then Nancy... Um, Christine came in and she's like, Mom, who's that man with Mr. Kenyon? And then uh, <laughs> came in, asked the same question, and then Nancy came in and she leaned over to Cindy and she said, Did you see that man with Mr. Kenyon? He just disappeared. And that oh, was wow. into the paranormal world. The most interesting wow. part of the story is that about an hour later, he reappeared. And he reappeared in the room, um, and my father was standing not two feet away from him, and my father did not see him, and we did. And that told me all I needed to know about our new digs. That's really interesting. And I I was actually curious uh, to ask if you guys ever had any positive experiences throughout that really shaped, you know, who you are today positive experiences um we had more positive experiences than you could possibly even count um another reason why it was house of darkness house of light it was both it was a fantastic way to grow up we had a 200 acre playground we had our own river we had streams and creeks and a fishing pond and an old cellar hole to explore and um just an amazing natural wonder that this place is forest you know, I mean, just extraordinary, extraordinary. In an original colonial farmhouse that was completed in 1736, the land for it, uh, the original homestead, was deeded in 1680. Uh, I mean, this is, wow. you know, one of the original homes in the country. Um, eight generations of one extended family lived and died in that house before we arrived there. And a, a good number of them never left. So it was very busy. It was very crowded. Uh, we had to make uh, an immediate adjustment not only to uh, an incredibly uncomfortable house, um, cold, damp, windy, uh, just, you know, oh, my God, oh, my God. <laughs> it, was, it was like um, camping in winter. Uh, there were mornings that uh, there would be uh, a, a sheet of ice on the water in the commode. 
Um, that's how cold the house could get at night. Uh, we were right smack in the middle of the Worcester Valley, one of the low spots in the whole state, uh, and the temperature was routinely 5 to 10 degrees lower than it was in Providence, which was, uh, as the crow flies, like 30 minutes away. But it was... Um, an incredibly uncomfortable way to grow up. I thought there were many mornings that I thought I, I would just cry having to get out of bed to go use the bathroom and get ready for school because I knew when I threw those quilts back that <laughs> it was going to slam me like a brick wall of cold. But it took us wow. some time to realize that it that was – we weren't just feeling natural cold. We were feeling supernatural cold. And there is a, an right. extreme difference between the two. And we didn't understand right away that the reason that the house was so frigid was because it was uh, occupied by uh, a, a great deal of spirit activity, which tends to drop temperatures dramatically. Right. So did yeah. I answer your question, um, or did I go off on a yeah. tangent again? I do that. You know, you have to <laughs> rein me back in sometimes. <laughs> no, that's that's actually good. It it actually brings me to the next question. Um, what? How many? How many spirits or beings or ghosts uh, would you say that you guys would tend to see or feel? And also, who was really the most popular? I guess you could say. Uh, the most popular in terms of who we had the greatest level of acceptance with. Um, is that what you mean? Yes. Okay. Um, I would say I'll answer that part first. I would say that's kind of a toss-up between the man next to Mr. Kenyon that my sister named Manny because she wasn't really particularly creative at that age, and he was a man, so she named him Manny. We did name them, you know, almost like they were pets, which was a little disrespectful, wow. but we had to call them something as we started to get to know them. And since none of them ever walked up to us and said, hello, my name is, uh, we you know, we had to kind of tag them. Uh, the only one that ever did uh, was April's little friend, the little boy um, uh, that she told us, to he told her his name was Oliver Richardson. And the Richardson family actually built that house. So, uh, wow. but April didn't know that. She was only five. Uh, and my mother didn't even know who had built the house at that time. But he told my sister April telepathically when he would sit beside her and, t and play with her and talk to her um, just through thoughts uh, that wow. that was his name and that he died when he was six years old. And there was something in that house that he was very frightened of. Um, so he's the one we had the greatest amount of empathy for and the little girl who died in the house um, that would show up uh, in the linen dress and walk through the upstairs through the middle bedroom. Uh, she had a handkerchief tucked up in her sleeve and always carried a book with her. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, those were, you, you got, your heart's got to go out to children that didn't even have a chance to leave and were too afraid to cross after they right. died. Um, but, uh, Manny was, uh, he was the one we think, we think he was most likely Johnny Arnold, um, from the, uh, the history on the house, uh, Johnny Arnold. 
according to Mr. McEachern, who was a, a local historian that lived not far away from us and befriended my mother, that he had crawled up into the eaves of the house and drank horse liniment, most likely to get drunk, and drank too much of mm -hmm. it and poisoned himself. Um, but he wow. said that he thought it was a suicide. Um, no, we don't know for sure. We'll never know for sure, not in this lifetime anyway. Uh, but, you know, just yeah. based on, you know, putting the pieces of the puzzle together, um, these were names that we came up with. Um, and the one that, you know, then there was one we never had a name for. We never knew who she was, uh, a spirit that would uh, lean over us at night as if she was kissing us on the forehead good night. And she'd make her rounds yeah. through the upstairs of the house. And we knew that it was not our mother tucking us in because mom always smelled like ivory soap. And this um, entity smelled of, of a strong, not strong, um, a pronounced aroma of flowers and fruit. Not strong like hmm. your aunt that pours evening of Paris all over herself. Not strong like that. <laughs> it was it was more um, it was more subtle than that, but uh, still, absolutely, it, it was a very enticing aroma. Um, mm -hmm. And those were the ones that seemed very protective of us and seemed okay. to love us and watched over us, which we all appreciated because there were other negative forces in that house to counteract that kind of kindness. And um, and so they were almost, in some ways, like a buffer for us. Okay. Now, who really affected all of you in such a negative way? Well, the spirit that went after my mother with a vengeance um, was uh, possibly, uh, according to Mr. McEachern, um, the um, one of the original mistresses of the house, uh, Mrs. John Arnold, and he told my mother that in the late 1700s um, that she hanged herself uh, at the age of 93. Um, wow. I, you know. He he lived right there in if what you could call a neighborhood, um, mm -hmm. and he's also the one that told my mother the whole story, all the folklore behind Bathsheba Sherman, uh, who never lived in the house. Bathsheba actually was not an Arnold. He said that she that he thought that she was, but it turns out that she was um, the offspring of a marriage between the Taft and Thayer families, two of the original settlers of the colony of Rhode Island. So she was, uh, you know, a really born American, um, didn't come from England. Uh, she was born in 1812. And uh, apparently her parents did come from England and were settlers in the Mass Bay colony before they followed Roger William, um, I, we really don't don't believe that it was Bathsheba Sherman that um, she didn't live in the house, but she had some connection to the house, and uh, right. she actually lived uh, at the Sherman farm, which was maybe about a mile away. Um, if you crossed over the power lines, and you know, just I mean, we were on parallel roads. 
Collins, Taft Road, and Roundtop Road. Uh, so um, she uh, had a terrible reputation in life, uh, according to to Mr. McEachern, who was so old when we met him that he actually knew her when he was a kid. She died when he was 10 years old. He was 10 wow. years old in, in 1812. I mean, in, in, um, in uh, 18, I'm sorry, 1885. So okay. you know how old when we moved in in 1970, <laughs> you know. So he, yeah. was, he was pushing 100 years old. And he's the one that told my mom that, um, that apparently what he said was that Bathsheba was caring for a child at the farmhouse. Um, we, and we don't know if it was her child or somebody else's child, but the baby died. And there was mm -hmm. an inquest because during the autopsy, they found a needle embedded at the base of his skull. And the cause of death was listed as convulsions. And so she was a young woman. Um, there was an inquest in the town of Chapachet because Burrowville hadn't even been incorporated yet. And so that was considered the town seat, which was the next larger, largest town down um, that was well established. And uh, apparently the judge said, you know, there's, there's no evidence here to convict this young woman. And she said, this, you know, whatever happened had to be an accident. I don't know. My mother only read the uh, the story that was written on it um, one time. Uh, it was up in the archives up in Worcester, Massachusetts at Clark University where she found it. Um, but okay. uh, it was uh, enough to cast a dark cloud over her lifelong. And, you know, the word from him was that the women in town didn't trust her. And, you know, she was in the court of public opinion. She was tried and convicted um, of, right. of infanticide and deemed a witch who had sold her soul for eternal youth and beauty um, with the sacrifice of this baby. Um, and that's the story that was given to my mother. And she heard it from other people, too. She heard it from Edna Kent and uh, Franz Hederbeck and a number of other uh, local history buffs that knew of the folklore of Bathsheba Sherman. But she didn't live at the house. She was not an Arnold. Um, right. But the um, Mrs. Arnold, who... My father thinks that it's her. Again, we don't know. Uh, my father is pretty convinced that it's her um, because the apparition had clearly had a broken neck. There was absolutely no mistaking it um, and w was truly hideous. Uh, it was just uh, an awful, awful sight. Um, her head looked like a desiccated hornet's nest uh, with hollow holes for the eye sockets and the nostrils and very thin, gaunt, um, almost black lips with jagged yellow teeth, a very hideous apparition. Um, and she appeared to my mother. Uh, I saw her um, attacking my mother in a lucid state. I won't call it a dream state. I was wide awake, but I couldn't move. I was paralyzed while it was happening. Um, wow. My sister Christine was approached by her, and my sister Cindy had the wits scared out of her um, the day she came uh, floating into her bedroom 
she heard a click of the latch of the door and thought someone was coming to get her for dinner. And when she looked up, this apparition was hovering over her and saying to her, come to me, little girl, come with me. Wow. Yeah, it freaks Cindy's, I mean, she's... That's truly frightening. I couldn't even... Yeah, yeah, she was, you know, she's just a little kid. And she, she ran down my bedroom stairs so fast that she fell and bounced off the wall and landed at the bottom, scuffed and torn up, and her back was bleeding, and oh my God, she went flying into the kitchen, ran the whole length of that house to find my mother, and was absolutely hysterical when she came into the kitchen. I mean, out of her mind, hysterical. And all she could say was, you're my mommy, you're my mommy, I want to stay with you. It was heartbreaking. So, yes, we had trauma. We had childhood trauma in that house, there's no question. We had many, many wonderful times, things that we did together as a family, experiences that we had. But for me, I have to say, honestly, and my sister Cindy gets aggravated with me when I say this, um, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, And she says, well, you just make sure that you tell them that not everybody in the family feels the way you do about this. (laughs) I will clarify on the air, okay? Uh, But I consider it the best 10 years of my life because it was certainly the most uh, fascinating years of my life. And it taught me from the tender age of 12 that there is absolutely something beyond our mortal existence, that spirit exists, that some way, somehow, we go on. I know it. I have my own empirical evidence. I lived it for a decade. So did every member of my family. And it was... um, you know, there were there were things that happened in that house that could have actually been considered life-threatening. I don't think that people right. should take ghost hunting, quote-unquote, as lightly as they do. Anybody that's really into paranormal research knows that there are yeah. certain inherent dangers being a paranormal investigator. And you damn well better know where you're going and know that you can trust your team and everybody's got everybody else is back because, you know, as my mother once said, um, I didn't think that spirits could could hurt us, but I was wrong about that. No, I mean, right. my sister Absolutely. Cindy almost suffocated. My sister Christine almost suffocated. My mother um, had a concussion. There was no exorcism that ever took place. That was absolutely concocted by the screenwriters. Uh, nor would Ed Warren have ever conducted an exorcism on his own. He was trained through the Catholic Church to assist with exorcism and had such a high degree of respect and loyalty to the priests who trained him. He would never, ever, ever have tried to conduct one on his own, regardless of the circumstances. Um, and Lorraine said that to me right as we were watching the film. We went for a private screening of it three months before it opened, and she was like, Andrea, I never told them that that happened. Ed would never have done that. I'm like, I know, Lorraine. I know, I know, I know. It's okay. It's only a movie, you know, but the fact is, you know, the other side of that is um, that they did initiate a seance, 
in our house that went horribly wrong, and it almost cost my mother her life. Um, you know, I hadn't seen Lorraine Warren in 40 years uh, when we met wow. at in you know a foyer of an of an elevator. Uh, the three months before the movie opened, I saw her again after 40 years. It was 2013, and the last time that I saw her was 1973. Wow. So, yeah, no, 1974. So, yeah, just about, just about 40 years. And, uh, you know, we had a lot to talk about and a lot to share. And, you know, she was upset that the film was fictionalized to the way that it was. Um, you know, Hollyweird has their way. Everything is formula. <laughs> Everything is method. Everything is what they determine that the viewing public will find palpable. Um, you know, but the problem is when you slap the words on a poster that says based on a true story, then, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, the, the fallout from that was that some lunatic teenager took a crowbar or a baseball bat to Bathsheba Sherman's gravestone that had been in the middle of Harrisville since 1885 and decimated it. You know, really? Wow. Because of a movie, you idiot? You know, I, oh, um, I'm i still livid about that. I can't even talk about that. I just get crazy. Oh, it, I it, can it, imagine. It, definitely yeah. imagine. It's, that's truly horrific. Disrespectful. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it was, uh, when the movie opened, it was, it changed everything. It changed my life in a lot of ways. It ended my friendship with the current owners of the farm because, um, oh. Norma, Norma Sutcliffe just went off the deep end. She was so upset about the movie and the trespassers on property and, you know, everything, even though the movie wasn't filmed there. You know, it was well known from the books that that's where it was, and none of my readers ever trespassed on her property. I had two of the right. three books out when the movie opened. Um, you know, so many, many thousands of people knew where that house was, and nobody, um, you know, infringed on their privacy in any way or imposed themselves on them uh, until the movie opened. And then all hell broke loose up there, and people were crawling through the woods and taking pictures through the windows, and, um, you know, it, it was it was really bad for them, and I understood that. But instead of placing blame where it rightfully should be, um, she turned on me and my family and went to the national press and said, go away, no ghosts here. And the parent family made it all up. It was just, you know, it's like, uh, excuse me? You know, I mean, she yeah. knew that than anybody. What had, uh, you know, we've, we've had countless conversations over almost 30 years from you know, right, right after she bought the farm. She's angry because she got a really raw deal, uh, and she didn't get, um, they were going to, they had secured rights to film at the house, and um, they were going to pay her, you know, a substantial amount of money to move out and yeah. let them use the house to film in. Well, they ended up not doing that, which was their right, according to their legal document that she signed. Um, not to use the house, but it also gave them to write to, the right to use the house. You don't understand? Hollywood makes sure all of its bases are covered, believe me. And um, so James Wan, after he learned the real true story, he said, we're not going to 
I'm not looking at that house. I'm not going to that house. We're not filming at that house. Thank you for listening to the Unexplained Paranormal Podcast. Share your experiences with our team by either calling 607-444-2868 or by email at unexplainedparanorm at gmail.com. You can also submit your encounter at www.unexplainedparanorm.com. I would greatly appreciate if you would rate the show, which can help us get the message out there. Share if you dare.